0: Good morning, welcome to Yongsan Baptist Church English Sunday School class for October 1st, 2nd, 2nd, October 2nd, 2022. I'll catch up one of these days. We are today continuing the the lesson we started last week. It was uh, the second, well, we're somewhere in the lessons of Unit 7, looking out at evidence from the opposition um, in the creation-evolution debate. We covered quite a bit of context uh, last week on the concept of um, the creation evolution debate and then the conflict of the creation evolution debate. Once we started that conflict portion, um, we looked at a lot of Bible verses, we looked at uh, some different situations, including a few quotes. Today, I want to get into the attacks and admissions of. The, the opposition, if you want to call it the opposition, the other side of the debate, the, those who support evolution, and sort of see some, as we'll begin here, fallacious, some false, and some foolish attacks of on, on creation and ultimately on God. So this first quote here is from a gentleman named Russell, Garwood, and he wrote an article called Reach Out to Defend Evolution. In his article, he complains that creationists present what he f- refers to as perceived gaps in scientific knowledge, and then they, that the creationists claim that those perceived gaps in knowledge are evidence to support a theistic worldview. So he claims that creationists are com- committing what's a logical fallacy. Everyone's heard of logical fallacies? Last year we studied in this class the concept of logic and how the creationist worldview is the only worldview that can substantiate logic existing. Because if you believe anything other than God created everything and that God created laws and God created order, then your worldview doesn't depend on order and therefore there cannot be logic. So you can't exercise logic to defend a worldview that doesn't itself substantiate the existence of the laws of logic. So the the claim here is that creationists are committing the logical fallacy of appeal to ignorance by claiming that a lack of scientific evidence for their position is evidence for our position. Some probably do that. I know that a lot of people don't study logic because they don't teach it in school anymore. And if you go to public school, you're probably not likely to know anything about logic from the mathematical perspective or from the philosophical perspective because mostly neither of those things are taught. But taking a biblical stand does not undermine science. It actually illuminates science. Just like reliable eyewitness testimony enables a detective to correctly interpret circumstantial evidence at the scene of a crime, we have eyewitness testimony in the Word of God to substantiate the evidence that we see around us. Here's another quote from... Uh, Wolf Michael Roth in 2010 at the University of Victoria. He says, ardent pro-evolutionists sometimes charge that fundamentalist creationists are not subject to reason and that they are not open to the facts or rational explanations thereof. But these so-called rational explanations that he's referring to, he's not explaining. Because if he were to explain his rational explanations. He would show that they are not reasonable, they are not logical, and they are not rational because they presume a critical view of God and his word and are based on a worldview that, as I just said, cannot justify laws of logic or concepts like rationale, truth, knowledge, justice. You can't justify any of those concepts with an evolutionary or humanist or materialist worldview. Next, in the textbook Evolution, by Joe Savage, or, well, probably compilation, but Joe Savage is the the one quoted in this particular passage. We do not need a listing of the evidences to demonstrate the fact of evolution any more than we need to demonstrate the existence of mountain ranges, okay? This, in and of itself, is a fallacious statement because he's making a false analogy to bully or brainwash the reader into thinking that the evidence for evolution is as clear and prevalent as mountain ranges that we see in almost every country of the world, don't fall for these kinds of tactics because they're trying to make you feel dumb if you don't know all of the evidence that is ubiquitous as the mountain ranges. Obviously, you're just not learned enough, and that's the problem. And that's where they're trying to go is the appeal to ignorance, and then follow that with the concept of they're trying to attack your person, which we'll see later as an homonym fallacy. So it, again, these are illogical techniques that happen all the time, but they don't, re- they don't render that as a proper argument for real adult, clear-headed debate about an issue. And that's in a textbook. Another textbook, um, yeah, was called Outlines of General Zoology. And the, the writer here, Horatio Newman, arrogantly declares that evolution has no rival as an explanation for the origin of everything except, as he calls it, the outworn and completely refuted one of special creation, now retained only by the ignorant, the dogmatic, and the prejudicial." So not only does he neglect to offer any of the proof that, of his claim that creation is completely refuted, but it's also patently a false statement. It's, this is a logical fallacy of what's called question-begging epithet. I uh, that's complicated, but it means you're using emotionally charged language to support an unproven claim. Um, why, it is, uh, why is it that evolutionists um, are unwilling to follow, I'm sorry, to, to allow for competing models like creation or even intelligent design? The, I mean, that's, it's, it's a question that I can, have never had one of them answer, right? Because when, when we wanna just talk about general science, they make an assumption of evolution and millions of years, and I make an assumption of creation and thousands of years. And we can have scientific discussion about empirical evidence now, but when we extrapolate based off of our worldviews why that is or what it means, right, or what it could mean in the future, then there's, a, then there's a disconnect. And then there's the immediate moment of, oh, well, now anything you think or say is completely thrown out because you're obviously an idiot. Right? And that that point is the inability to allow the other person to have a differing opinion than you, or a differing interpretation than you, different worldview, different model. Right? That's immature and it's not productive to the conversation from a philosophical perspective or from a spiritual perspective. So we have to make sure we don't feel that way, that we don't call out evolutionists, materialists, creationists, uniformitarianists. We, we should pity them right? Just like we should pity a sinner who doesn't know that he's a sinner. We should in all of these conversations speak the truth in love, be patient, be kind, right? But be knowledgeable. We need to know what it is they believe and we need to let them tell us what it is they believe so that we can compare that to what scripture says, right? And be able to have a conversation that is productive for both of us because, but there is this I mean, at least in my experience over the last 20 years, there is not there are not many evolutionary thinking people who have the patience to listen to another worldview. They, they think they know what the other person's talking about and immediately dismiss them. The hypothesis of evolution changes every year though. My entire life, the hypothesis has shifted this way, shifted that way, changed in this way, added years here, thrown in, what's that term? Um, spontaneous generation right so these different concepts right but then not only spontaneous generation but the cuz that's an old one right that we talked about but then there was there's the other concept of sort of the leaps forward in evolution right we, we can't find transitional species right then they have to they had to come up with another theory in the 70s to say oh well there's there's a process of building up potential energy of evolutionary capacity, so that the mutations can happen in a single generation, right? I forget what the term is for that, but it is a it's a it's a Ph.D. level term of evolutionary biology. I, I believe Stephen Gould might have been the one to coin the term. Um, that basically it can be a as as we see with fairy tales like the X-Men movies, right? A leap forward in in evolution, right? That's that's the only way they can they can justify the fact that there are no transitional species to be found in the fossil record. But if you give it a big fancy scientific term, it's still a fairy tale, right? So it, even in, in, still in the, the, the evolutionary theory or model changes every year. And if one theory is said to be fact, but then a year later, it's shown to be erroneous, then how can it be a fact in the first place? Maybe you're claiming it as fact, but it does not yet fact, and then it's not really a theory if it continues to be changed, right? It might be your model, and a model can continually change, but a theory should be a little more solid than that. So a true fact is something that never changes, and I believe we can agree on that. If something is a fact, it should never change, okay? The facts of a case, the facts of scripture, the facts of life, and another example, Some writers suggest that creationists are irrational, as we've seen in some of these others. But there's an increasing consensus among secular scientists based on what they claim to be actual scientific research that uh, I'm referencing six different uh, uh, research publications here uh, from Zuckerman, Silverman, Hall, um, uh, Pesta, Kanazawa, Pennycock, several, Birch, just several different research um, things altogether. I think I left most of the, the uh, references in here. So there is a, an increasing consensus among scientists that Christians who believe in God, angels, the soul, heaven, and hell are stupid or at least less intelligent on average than atheists, less reflective, less analytic in their thinking, and make more errors in logical reasoning than skeptics and atheists that this is not evidence that we are that way. This is evidence that scientists think we are that way. Okay. So this is re- these are research studies about the perception of creationists by secular scientists. Okay. The Where did I lose my line here? Okay, less analytic interthinking, thinking, make more errors. But this is what I was referring to earlier as an ad hominem fallacy. So in the Latin, it just means to the man. So instead of taking the argument to the issues, you're taking the argument to the man, thereby trying to dismiss the issues. So the ploy is to attack and discredit a person in order to dismiss their position and not have to deal with the argument. Though the validity um, of the argument is not dependent on the character of the person presenting it, the We can all admit that I'm a faulty, sinful man, but that doesn't make me incapable of speaking truth, right? I can say something that if it depends upon the source of its information, or the person that I'm referring to, can still be true, even if I'm a liar, right? Me lying does not mean that everything I have ever or will ever say is a lie, right? Me making a mistake does not mean I'm incapable of getting it right. It just means I made a mistake. So that ad hominem approach is easy to see in politics all the time. They want to, as they call it, throw mud or mudslinging in debates. Well, obviously this guy's an idiot because he believes this or because he said this or because he did this. right? It always has to be past tense. It can hardly ever be present tense and it can't be future tense. But they extrapolate it. Again, as we talked about in the last couple of weeks, Looking at actual microevolution evidence of a bird changing its beak density because of the trees that it has to to, to eat from, or um, a giraffe growing a longer neck because the leaves are a little bit higher, those are adaptations of a variation within a kind, which is completely observable and absolutely true. as part of science to adapt to your environment. Some of us are taller, some of us are shorter, some of us have more pigment in our skin or less pigment in our skin. Some of us have bigger muscles, some of us don't, right? These are all adaptations to our environment, to our diet, to our, our, our jobs, right? Those are all things that adapt us over time, but we are all still humans. But then you can't extra- extrapolate the evidence you see in one level of evolution to justify all five other levels of evolution. Whereas in, in this argument, you can't extrapolate the one instance of a mistake or even an error, or even malfeasance, right? You can't extrapolate that one case to denigrate the entire character of a person and throw out all of the things they've ever done in their life. However, in law, they typically will do that. If you can discredit the the capability of a lawyer in a case to say that they mishandled evidence, misrepresented testimony, or did something illegal in order to get a, um, a, a judicial body or a judge to render a certain verdict, right? Then the, the, the judge that finds out that and throws that case out will then bring back to court every other case that that lawyer has ever won. Wow. Because it, that one case of, be, of doing things against the law to get justice brings into, in their mind, into question everything that they've ever done. So it doesn't mean that it will all get thrown out, but it will be brought back for appeal or, or rendering a new judgment, right? So then that, that could foreseeably throw out other cases if they had made those same poor choices, but it doesn't mean they necessarily did, right? Um, whereas in regular life, it's not appropriate for me to, to disregard everything you say simply because in one point we disagree. It's not logical, it's not rational, it's not human, right? But yet, that's what we see from the opposition. Again, not having the ability to to withstand true, honest debate about their position, they would rather attack and and push away, right? So then those are some of the attacks. Uh, John Wilkins, in 2011, at the University of Sydney, found it difficult to understand why, quote, people become creationists when the bulk of modern thought depends so heavily on science. But Wilkins here is committing an, a logical fallacy, the fallacy of ambiguity, because he's assuming that science is necessarily at odds with the belief in creation. Um, I, I think what we've proven over the last year that this is not the case, that science and the creationist belief can go hand in hand. We can use science to support our worldview and the truth claims of Scripture. And that increasingly, we can see that evolutionists are incapable of using true empirical, non-biased science to support their worldview. Instead, they have to make adjustments. They have to um, begin with the end in mind, as it were, right? They have to make circular reasoning judgments. They have to have a Reference ranges of standard deviation that are completely unmanageable, uh, plus or minus five billion years. Come on, that's in, that's in, that's outrageous. Um, so that's not science. It's it's hope. It's it's um, the desire for things to be the way you want them to be because you can't accept the way they are. Fantasy. Okay. So past that, I, I also mentioned last week that. There are attacks and you know false assumptions and different things like that. But then there are also admissions of ignorance on, on the part of our uh, of our opponents. Um, again, I, I don't like the word opponents. Say the other side of the debate, right? So those on on the opposite side of the, 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 the debate, those that support evolution, um, often will make either admissions of their own ignorance or admissions of their incredulity, right? And that that means they're that they have a knowledge of the thing and refuse to believe it. So it's different when you don't have any knowledge of it and you're ignorant to the truth than when you know the truth and you refuse to believe it. Okay, so here's the first one of those. On the topic of chemical evolution, remember I said there are multiple levels of evolution, but on the topic of chemical evolution, yielding living cells, Dr. David Green said in his book Molecular Insights into the Living Process, the macromolecule to cell transition is a jump of fantastic dimensions which lies beyond the range of testable hypothesis. In this area, it's all conjecture. That's a pretty strong admission. It's all conjecture. The available facts do not provide a basis for postulating that cells arose on this planet. That is as long as you ignore the Bible. Right? The available facts of the Bible do Provide a basis for living cells arriving on it. a lot. A, you know, what did they say? Uh, arising on this planet right? because they were created by God in their fully functional forms. But as long as you ignore the Bible, because that's we can't believe that, right? Then there's no way that you can substantiate the belief of non-life to life, chemical evolution to biological evolution transition. Dr. Francis Crick, anybody know who that is? One of the two discoverers of DNA, wrote a book called Life Itself, and Francis Crick is still a, an ardent evolutionist. So the discovery of DNA is one of the, we could probably get to a list at some point, of hundreds of, of massive leaps forward in technology and medical discovery and, and science over the last thousand years and how almost without fail all of them were accomplished or were discovered by men who admitted to believing in a God at least deists if not theists if not biblical creationists right but they believed in that higher power of God the intelligent design of the world and the universe and they were looking to understand more about it as opposed to modern scientists who refuse to believe in any higher power than themselves and are trying to invent ways to prove that, right? So Dr. Francis Crick is one of the few um, great discoveries of the modern era that was substantially is, has a place on that list of, of, of great discoveries and uh, technological improvements who, st- who was not in and of himself a a believer. But, in his book, he says, what is so frustrating for our present purpose is that it seems almost impossible to give any numerical value to the probability of what seems a rather unlikely sequence of events. An honest man, armed with all the knowledge available to us now, could only state that in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. And he has to provide all of those qualifiers because he can't bring himself to admit that it is miraculous that life began on this earth and only on this earth in all of the universe. It is a miracle breathed from the mouth of God. And I can admit that and I know that, right? But he can't bring himself to admit it. So he can say almost, seems rather, almost, nearly, at the moment, right? Sadly, he concludes... Sadly, his conclusion in his life is that the first living organisms on Earth might have been seeded here by intelligent beings from other parts of the universe. So when you reject the truth your only option is to believe a lie. And His, his life is proved that. So this one is interesting, the next one, it's from the book Evolution from Space. Sir Fred Hoyle um, was actually the man who named the Big Bang Theory, if you remember when we studied the Big Bang, Big Bang Theory, He gave it that name to denigrate it, because he didn't agree with the position. Um, And then they liked it, and they ended up sticking with it. Uh, But he was making fun of their theory by, um, by calling it the Big Bang Theory. Go away. There. Now, he wrote, it's up there, yeah. Once we see, however, that the probability of life originating at random is so utterly minuscule as to make it absurd, it becomes sensible to think that the favorable properties of physics on which life depends are, in every respect, deliberate. It is therefore almost inevitable that our own measure of intelligence must reflect higher intelligences, even to the limit of God. Such a theory is so obvious that one wonders why it is not widely accepted as being self-evident. Hoyle admitted that no amount of time, now being considered, Yes. No amount of time um, now being considered keep losing my spot on the page (laughs) by evolutionists is even remotely adequate to accomplish the, the formation of a higher living organism by chance. It's not possible. Such an event, he said, would be comparable to the chance that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a Boeing 747 from the materials therein. Which is a very common quote and And it's, you know, it's very charged, right, and gives us a lot of imagery to think about. But Hoyle himself came to believe in intelligent design later in life, and he came so close to the truth, but he still wouldn't give God the glory. In the origin, I'm sorry, in the book, On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life, which is the actual full title to Darwin's seminal book. Charles Darwin wrote, to suppose that the eye, with all its inim- inimitable, thats a hard word, contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. A lot of Christians use this to, to try to claim that Charles Darwin didn't believe his own theory. That's not true. It didn't sway his belief in his theory that he was putting forth. It was just a thorn in his mind of how do I get past this? So he wrote in a letter to a man named Asa Gray, who was professional in natural history at Harvard in 1860, he wrote, The eye is to this day, I'm sorry, the eye to this day gives me a cold shudder. But when I think of the fine-grown gradations, that word means a series of gradual successive changes my reason tells me that I ought to conquer the cold shudder. So he indicated that even though he was troubled by the absurdity of the eye ever evolving from simple to complex, right? If, if any eye of any creature is actually simple, I would say that it's not, right? But at least um, by how men try to categorize right, the simple to complex concepts, his presupposition that evolution was true was so strong that it led him to believe that the increasing complexity of the eye was due to natural selection, and he just left it at that. He just believed it without trying it and stopped thinking about it. But the how of the supposed progression of gradations over successive time right, was never explained by Darwin or by anyone else. There is no one, no matter how smart, who can explain how the eye can do what the eye can do. And not only how the eye can do it, but how it can do it ba- balanced with another one. Right? Because it's one thing for this eye to see. It's another thing for this eye to see something that is separated from it and then blend the images together into one in your brain. Right? That's fantastic. And nobody's ever figured out how to explain how we go from a bacteria to eyeballs because it's impossible. But they have faith in it. Okay, just one more and I think this one needs a little bit of context. Um, One of the most fundamental axioms of modern biology is that all life, is that it okay, one of the most fundamental axioms of modern biology is that all life comes from pre-existing life, right? Still, until the latter part, what? Okay, I'm almost there, I'm giving you the context first. (laughs) Until the latter part of the 19th century, life was believed to arise from non-living matter by a process of spontaneous generation. The ancient Egyptians thought that mice arose from the mud of the Nile. In 1600, J.B. Helmont even reported proof for the spontaneous generation of mice, claiming that if you put wheat, cheese, and soiled linen in a jar, that mice would eventually appear. This idea of the spontaneous generation of life from non-life was so deeply ingrained in biological thought that it took nearly 200 years of experimental evidence to completely disprove it. In his book, Origins, A Skeptic's Guide to Creation of Life on Earth, evolutionist Robert Shapiro abandons all skepticism and logic, and he lamely argues one escape hatch yet exists for spontaneous generation. Why would you want to bring it back? Why need the event have been probable? We can just stare at the odds, shrug, and note with thanks how lucky we are. After all, improbable events occur all the time. So in his ignorance, he's saying, I don't have to know why it existed, I just have to believe it. <laughs> because I have to believe my theory, because I can't believe your theory, that you believe even if you don't know why or how, then i denigrate you for that, but I'm going to take the same ploy and say I believe it no matter if I know why or how. Just accept the chance, the, the luck of it, while I accept the miracle of it, right? So." My God is a God of miracles that can do things beyond the laws of creation that he's put me in. Their God is a God of chance and death and mistakes because it took millions and millions and millions of tries and failures and tries and failures over eons of death and destruction and waste to maybe get to something that looks like you and then you want to believe that what looks like you after all of those mistakes is not a mistake and is capable of knowing more than everything or everyone else. What's to say that it's not yet, process won't keep going and that you're not just another mistake on the way to something actually being correct. How can you trust your own thoughts? How can you trust your own feelings? How are feelings even a thing? If it's all just chance, then why do we have laws? Why do we have rules? Why do you care what I believe? Why are you going and holding seminars trying to teach college students away from the the bounds of religion and the the, the chains of, of ignorant thought that they were raised in to get them to believe what you believe? Why does it matter? If it's all just chance, why does any of it matter? But if it is all purpose and design, It all matters. It matters what we believe. It matters who we believe. And it matters why we believe it. So I hope that we can look at the fact that evolutionists who want knowledge but not accountability to God must essentially invoke miracles without God and chalk them up to luck and chance. They have no other choice than to believe in chance events so improbable that they undermine the science and the reason and the statistical foundation upon which they're supposed to rest. Creationists, on the other hand, have a reasonable faith in a knowable God and is not contradicted in the slightest by what we discover over and over as we continue to seek the vast expanse of space or of the microscope. Honest exploration of real science over and over and over again proves what the Bible has said for thousands of years. Explore. Hypothesize, experiment, search, learn, study, please. I'm not scared of you learning more. I'm not scared of us going into space. I think it's a waste of money, but I'm not scared of it, right? Because I don't have a fear that some evolutionist in a a rocket is going to find life on another planet. Because I believe God. And I believe after evidence, after evidence, after evidence, that we have found no proof to disprove. God, but we found lots of reasons to believe God, so read your Bible, right, and study that evidence, see the word, see the world, and see how they tend over and over to support each other, that will give you more faith and more confidence, and it will get you closer to what God has wanted for you all along, which is not just life, but it's life abundantly. Amen? Let's pray, and then we'll get out to the service. Heavenly Father, thank you. In